Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, so, so one of the things that I heard Reb Shlomo say many, many times was, why are you making God small? And uh, it, it just kind of continues to echo in my mind, in my soul, those words. Why, why are you making Hashem so small? And, and there, there's so much contained in that. And it's also the, the solution to a, a very big puzzle that I think that, that we all kind of go through. So I want to kind of walk you through it, um, at least my, my current understanding of it. So I just start with this story. It's a, it's it's not the most spectacular story, but hopefully it's it's unspectacularness, if that's a word, is 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 relatable because it's something that we're all going through. So so I was eating lunch and there was there's this uh, this minion. I realized, wow, I can I can make mincha, but if I'd have to leave right now, and you know what? Not only would I have to leave right now, but in order to kind of make it on time. I'd have to get a parking spot right in front of the shul. And I've been to this place many times, and at this time of day, because it's right next to a, a, a popular restaurant, there's never any parking spaces there. So I thought, well, that's not going to happen. And then I had this amazing idea. I said, what if you pray for a parking space, right? Like this is in advance, right? So I thought, ah. And then I said, no, just, just try it. Well, ah. I was like, try it. So I was like, okay. And it was a, a pretty, pretty unspectacular prayer. But I said, please, God, may there be, it's your will, may there be a parking space in front of the place. So I drive up, and there's, there's like two parking spaces. And, which was, and I was like, wow, I can't believe it. So I just park, and I go in. And now the next day happens. And, um, and I didn't know what to do with it, really. You know? And then the next day happens, and, and I was in the exact same situation. I was about five minutes away. I just kind of eaten lunch, and I'm thinking, you know, if I if I hurry right now, I can I can make it to shul. But I'm only gonna it's only gonna work if I have a parking space right in front of the restaurant. And I thought, well, you know, I just prayed yesterday, and there was a parking space opened up in front of the restaurant. I can't really do that again, can I? And I thought, just try it. So I said. God, if it's your will, let there be a parking space in front of the, the place. And as I'm pulling up, and I'm about, about three quarters of a block away, there is no parking space, but I'm driving toward it three quarters of a block away. I see a person entering into the car, parked in, in front of the shul, getting out. And I'm like, wow, I can't believe it. It's like, it's like the, the space was being held for me, you know? But then I look over and I see in the lane one over. So I'm in the closer lane. In the lane one over, a guy also sees that spot. <laughs> and I see he starts to angle toward it. And I hit the accelerator <laughs> since I was, you know, in the right lane. You know, I, I guess I had, you know, the whatever that's called, the... Uh, Right away, yeah. So I had the right of way, so I accelerated, and there it was, and, and, and there it was. Okay, so, so, and then, this was even crazier. I don't know if it was that first day or the second day. There was someone who I, I wanted to have a conversation with at work. This is all leading to a point, by the way. There was someone who I, who I wanted to have a conversation with work, but he works with someone else, and I'd have to catch him alone, and... 
it just, it's not the normal order of things that that circumstance would open up. So as I walked from there, or drove from there, back into the building, the building opens up and he walks out. But there were some other people walking in when I was walking in, so that even though it was like this kind of miraculous moment, I couldn't take advantage of it. So, and I was just kind of stymied by the fact that there were other people there, and so it was sort of like... And so I walked into the building, and then I thought, wait, what, what are you doing? So, something just amazing just happened. Go back outside onto the sidewalk. And they thought, no, the person's not going to be standing there. You probably walk someplace else, you know? And I said, well, just look. So I looked. He's standing alone on the sidewalk. <laughs> Why? I have no idea. We were able to talk. It was very good. Okay. So, so things like this happen to us. And then we don't really know what to do with them. And then we, we, we know intellectually, well, I just prayed for that, and it just happened. But then it's sort of like, you know, how do, I, how do I assimilate that in my mind? How do I integrate that in my mind that I literally just prayed for something, and it literally just happened? You know, so... so so this is, this is somewhat ironic or paradoxical or whatever the proper word is because the whole point of praying is that you know that there's someone, some, a power God to pray to and that God is listening and that God is all-powerful. These are all the premises that we assume when we utter a prayer and that God can do anything and that God has done that thing and that and yet afterwards you go, no. <laughs> like that didn't just happen. Even though you are engaged in that cause and effect, that, that sort of like, and yet you go, nah. How, what is going on there, right? Because that's, that, is, that is a problem we will have to solve. Because if God is actually responding to prayers, this is the greatest validation of our relationship with him. And yet, if we don't have room for it in our heart, then something's wrong, right? We, there's, there's, a, there's something that we need to fix. So how do you, how do you fix that exactly? That's, that's the question. So, so now let's get back to the original point, which is those words from Reb Shlomo. Why are you making God so small? Why are you making God so small? You see, the thing is, is that a person, you see, I always like to give that example from Rabbi Wolfson about uh, belief. That he says, he, he sort of like came up with this example. He said, he said that you go up to a person and you say to them, uh, did you eat breakfast? Right? You're hungry. Did you eat breakfast? And he goes, no, I ate breakfast yesterday. Right? It doesn't make any sense. Breakfast, if you ate breakfast yesterday, that's, you know, mazel tov, But it has nothing to do with whether you ate breakfast today. It's a daily thing. It's only relevant in, in its dailiness, right? So he says that's the same thing with faith. You can have faith yesterday, but, but that, it's, not so, it's not like a couch that you buy that you have on an ongoing basis. Faith is a very mercurial thing. It comes and it goes every day, even among the quote-unquote faithful. Like you can call yourself religious, whatever that means, 
And yet that's something that has to renew itself on a daily basis. Which means that maybe you had, um, maybe you thought God was very big, right, yesterday, but you don't think that way today. Even though you're going through all the quote-unquote religious motions. But the vessel that you have for God today is very small. And so when he responds to a prayer, you go, no. <laughs> right, that, did that just, like, had it, is that what? Because you've shrunk down the vessel to hold him. So how do you, how do you fix that? You have to remind yourself of how big God is. It's not, it doesn't require any invasive surgery. <laughs> it's like just, you just have to go over the steps of your mind. You have to say to yourself, well, wait a second, where did this world come from? Like, did this world just sort of randomly form? So there are people who tell you, well, I personally don't think that's, that makes a lot of sense. I know, you know. So, so it's, it, it's too exact. It's too precise. It's just, it's just, anyway, that's a, it's a whole other lengthy conversation, but that's the bottom line of it. So if, you, if you're one of those people who just intuitively feels that this world didn't just randomly form, we didn't just randomly form, that there is a creator, then you say to yourself, okay, well look, so, so there's a giant world. And wait, it's not just a giant world. It's a really giant world. I mean, we're talking really giant. I mean, I, I keep on seeing this thing written, although I can't you know, prove it to you, but they say that there are more heavenly bodies, meaning stars, you know, whatever, planets, you know, things like this, than grains of sand in the world. <laughs> I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous how big the universe is. So when we say that God made the universe, we're not just talking about you and me and pi, right? And you're like, we're, we're talking about something ridiculously awesome. And anyone who can make something ridiculously awesome can get you a parking space <laughs> if you need a parking space. It's like, it's the least of it. It's the least of it. So then once you remind yourself of these things, then all of a sudden your vessel expands to hold more light, and now all of a sudden you can receive this sort of relationship that's going on where you actually pray and your prayer is answered, and then you go, thank you, God, of course, because now all of a sudden you've got this expanded vessel to hold the response from God. Do you understand? So, so if you find yourself stymied in terms of your relationship with God, I would suggest you go through these steps and you, 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 you expand your vessel, your inner vessel, to hold a greater light. And that just comes from a greater appreciation that God can absolutely do anything. But just, you have to kind of go through it a little bit more so it's not just an intellectual exercise. You have to actually understand it. You have to contemplate it. You have to contemplate it. You know? And then you go, oh yeah, of course, of course. So, with that in mind, let's just sort of like deepen, deepen it a little bit. We're not supposed to ask God for miracles. And there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a very interesting Gomorrah that says that there was once a man, as opposed to a woman, there was once a man who, um, who I guess had a baby that was, that the, the, the mother had died or I think the mother had died, or she wasn't in the picture for whatever reason. And the man had to feed the baby. And 
the man actually breastfed the baby and milk came out and the man was able to um, feed this baby and this is recorded in the Gomorrah and now there are two very opposite opinions about the rabbis reflecting on this event the first, the first opinion is unbelievable, what a miracle what a miracle and the second opinion is ugh, you know like look how God had to make a miracle for that guy because normally speaking we're not asking for miracles we want it to flow through the natural order so that, that, it's interesting it's interesting the two very different ways of looking at it yeah? so, so how do you get around it because we all want miracles right everyone wants a miracle Everyone wants something that's uh, transcendent, where you see the infinity of God. Rabbi Freeman said something so beautiful the other day. He says, you know, if you had some, I don't know how he described it, like a, a mark on the wall or something like that, some weird thing on the wall or some electronic box on the wall, and you've got a, a team of uh, top scientists, let's say, you know, from MIT, Caltech, and you said to them, I want you to tell me absolutely everything about that that box, that piece of circuitry on the wall. And then when you're finished, knowing absolutely everything about it, then come back to me and report. And and so what's the joke? The joke is they would they would never come back. <laughs> they would never come back. Why? Because and there's something very, very deep here. Why? Because there's within that finite construct there is an infinite amount of information <laughs> now that's kind of trippy because it's finite and yet you know if you were that scientist and imagine you know a million times more than you know you would be digging into that thing endlessly which means that this world is finite and yet it contains the infinite within its finiteness that's, that's way out. That's way out. This world is finite, and yet simultaneously there's infinity implanted within its finiteness. Because it's all part of a God who's infinite. And we all have a very direct relationship with this, lest you think this is just a thought exercise. We have something called a soul. A soul is a piece of infinity within our finite body. So this is, this is an extremely personal thought as well. Right? And remember, each person is a miniature universe because your soul is a piece of heaven and your body is earth. Right? A person is called Adam. Adam comes from the word Adama, which means ground, earth. So your body is made out of earth and yet your soul is made out of heaven. So you yourself are a miniature of the heavens and the earth. You're, every single person is a miniature universe, which is why it says if you save one person, it's like you save the whole world. So, so let's get back to this point. We have to expand our vessels right, to be able to, to, be able to hold more. And we're not supposed to ask for miracles, right? Because God wants to do it 
through the natural order, and yet, ironically, the natural order itself is miraculous, right? As we see that the, infin the infinite is contained within the finite. Okay, so let's go further, because there's a way around it, how you can get miracles without asking for miracles. And the way that you do that, and again, I'll tell you another story from the Gomorrah. I, I think it's Rab Chenina Bendosa. You have to double check that, but I think it is. So he was very poor, and not because God didn't provide for him, God forbid, but because he just, he just, he didn't want the wealth. He, he basically didn't want the wealth, and there's a whole story about how he was given a great fortune, and they decided to, that they didn't want it, and it went back to heaven. It's a, it's a whole thing. They, they chose to live this way because this is what they wanted. This was the, the best way that they, they knew to serve God without, without this sort of material overlay. And because they had very few things, um, uh, the rabbi's wife came. It was, it, was, it was about, it was candle lighting time for Shabbat and she didn't have any oil to light with because oil costs money. And back then, also, you know, it was not free. And she was heartbroken. She's like, you know, it's like, how can I not light candles? And he said, well, what do we, what do we have? She, and she says, we have some vinegar. He goes, okay, the one who can make oil light can also make vinegar light. So she lit with vinegar, and they had Shabbos candles. <laughs> So that was a miracle, but it's a different category of miracle, and this is the point. Because if you know, as he did in his greatness, that everything is a miracle, then you can ask for miracles because you're not really asking for a miracle because you understand that everything is miraculous. See, this is something that I try to remind myself of all the time, and it's a, it's a life-changing thought if you, can actually, if you can actually integrate this into your consciousness, which is nothing is as it has to be. Nothing is as it has to be. If anything is happening, that's like some sort of revelation in front of you. Like you go, like, of course, yeah, it's like, and then I walk out, and of course it's there. You know, I'm sure that there were certain landmarks in Syria, in Damascus, that were there for probably a thousand years, and every time someone walked down the street, there it was. I tell you, it's a pile of rubble right now. You say, well, for a thousand years that thing was there. Of course, when I turn the corner, it's going to be there. No. Nothing is, nothing has to be, nothing, nothing at all, zero. So if you have anything, the shirt on your back, anything, anything, that is a present tense revelation and gift from God in the moment. It is. It just is. And this isn't like, oh, you're so spiritual. No. Mm -hmm. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about reality right now. I'm talking about a baseline consciousness of reality. Because that's the truth. That's actually the truth. Now it happens to be, if you actually live like this, you will be happier and you will appreciate everything around you. Right? 
it's like it's kind of funny because it's sort of like some people go like this. They say, uh, you know, religion is a crutch. It's a crutch. Why? 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 You know, why do you need that to to get through life? You know, what's wrong with you that you need that that notion? Well, here's another way of looking at it. Religion is actually, well, God, there actually is God who actually does run the world, who actually did make me and, and everything else. And that's true. That's reality. And you know what else? It makes me feel good. <laughs> it's possible that the truth also makes you feel good. In other words, why does someone have to run to this idea that it's a crutch? Why can't it be true and also feel good? Right? So, so again, let's just, let's just review that point because I think that this is very, very important. Because basically, all we have, all, all a person has is a relationship with God. You know, it's, it's, if you, everything can be stripped away. I mean, but the only thing that can't be taken away from us, literally the only thing that cannot be taken away from us is our relationship with God. So if that is, if that is the bottom line of, of the world, of our lives, of reality, if that's the bottom line, then it's, it's very important that we, that we get that relationship right, because that's our primary relationship. You know? The, the very first public talk I ever gave, right? I, I called it making Hashem your best friend. <laughs> right? Because it just makes sense. If that is the primary pillar of everyone's life, then let's get it right. Let's get it right. Okay. So now, listen to this. Rabbi Sitran was saying this over yesterday in the name of the Sfas Emes, right? The Ger Rebbe. So, and when you see it on the page, it's so, it's so beautiful because you see there's a diagram of a relationship right in the sitter that's, again, it becomes so obvious once it's explained and then you realize, oh, it was right there. But this is from the Sfasemis. So, if everything boils down to this essential relationship, we have to understand that, 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 that the core aspect of this essential relationship is love. Right? See, we, what, what is the central, what is the, 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 the one line that kind of the whole Jewish outlook falls into? Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, right? God is one. And that word Echad, remember, is this numerical equivalent of Ava, which is love. The word one and love are the same because you see it. When two people, how do peop, two people become one? Through love. How does the world become one? Through love. So, how do I come to love God? And the Sfasema says something very beautiful. You come to love God when you know that God loves you. And now when you look in the sitter, in the prayer book, you see how this is actually laid out in the most amazing way. Because the last blessing that we say, 
the last thing that we say before Shema Yisrael, Shem Elokein, Shem Echad, that God is one, that the whole world exists within His oneness, and that one is the same, the same gematria as love, right? The last thing that we say are, is this blessing. Blessed are you, Hashem, God, right? Who chooses His people, Israel, with love. So what you're being told is God loves you. And then you make this declaration of the Shema, which, which again is hinting at love. And then the next thing it says, the very next thing it says is, V'yahavta es Hashem alokecha, and you shall love God. And how do you love God? How do you keep that commandment of loving God? Well, because you know that God loves you. You were just told that two seconds ago. <laughs> so it's God's God telling you He loves you, the Shema itself, and then you're responding back with your love for the God who loves you. It's just, it's all, it's all on the page. You know, you know they, they say um, in relationships, and this is one of the best pieces of relationship ad- advice that I've ever heard, and from the Torah, that normally speaking, it's sort of like, you know, imagine you're in a relationship and you're sort of kind of falling out of it, right? Cease to become exciting. And you say, well, you say to the other person, you know what? I, maybe if you gave me more presents. <laughs> like, then, because I remember when we were first dating, you gave me a lot of presents. Can you, can you just give me some more presents? <laughs> maybe that will jumpstart some sort of love in me for you. <laughs> But the Torah actually says the opposite. The Torah says is that when you give, that that actually generates love within you for the other person, the person that you give to. And what we forget is that the moment when we were receiving presents from that other person in the beginning of that relationship, we were also giving them presents. <laughs> that was the part. Not the receiving part. The receiving part, I'm sure, didn't hurt. But that wasn't the critical element. The critical element was the giving. So you give and you give, and as you give, you generate love for the person that you're giving to. That's a a great secret to the human riddle. Because it's so counterintuitive. We think it's sort of like, let me, give me more, give me more, give me more. Okay, now I like you. Right? So, and so the more we give, the more we love. And that's on every level, on a friendship level, romantic level, on a heavenly level in terms of a relationship with God. You know, there's a lot of, anyone who takes Torah seriously understands that. It's a, it's a, very, it's a very disciplined kind of, um, you know, regimen, if you will. I mean, that's sort of a clinical way of looking at it. But it, it's, a, it's a very exacting and exhaustive regimen. But the upside to that is it's giving absolute meaning to everything under the sun and to every aspect of your day and every aspect of your life. And it's also jump-starting this engine of giving all of the time, which is, which is and then you're able to receive more Right, and then you, your relationship with, with 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 the Creator, with the Divine, becomes 
just just stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger and more beautiful. So, so I want to review a point because I, I, I think it's an I think it's an important point, especially as we get closer to Rosh Hashanah. It's 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 important that we just kind of go over some 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 basic things. This isn't so basic, but nonetheless. You see, I know a lot of smart people, and they don't they don't believe, or they do believe, but they don't know that they believe. Whatever, it's it's not worth debating. The the the, the bottom line is is that. Once you understand it, it's obvious. But something is not obvious until it's obvious. Right? Like there's a, a famous story about the... I heard it in the name of the Briska Rebbe. And he was um, among his, you know, enormous, gigantic Torah mastery skills was the ability to take very, very complicated ideas in the, in, 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 in the Talmud, for instance, and to be able to explain them very simply. And so he had just managed to find a way to condense like probably, you know, a couple of thousand years of thinking on contracts and contract law and was able to say it over in a very simple, clear way to one of his students. And the student heard it and said, that's obvious. And then he said to him, was it obvious before I said it? Because once we get certain things, we go, of course it's obvious, but was it obvious a moment ago? Um, so why is it that people are, very smart people, are often blocked and don't see? So I think that, um, I, I'd like to suggest a, a, a way of explaining it, which is that, you see, a lot of people proceed in sort of a very, let's call it scientific way, okay? just loosely speaking. And what they do is they build their um, body of knowledge from, let's say, the bottom up. Okay? So they're, so they're starting, they're, they're observing phenomena around themselves, and they're trying to understand math, science, everything like this. And they've got sort of like a, a foundational understanding of how they understand the world works. And then they start hearing different concepts of, of thoughts and say, Torah or something like this. And then, well, well, that kind of doesn't fit in with what I was, what I previously understood, and that sounds like way out. Like, well, I don't, and I, I don't even know about that. I, I, I don't know, no, I don't know. That none of that makes sense. Okay, I reject it. Okay, so that's that's someone starting. That's the way a typical person does it. They start from the bottom, this world, and they work up. Okay, that's how most people do it. And I think then they, many people hit a stumbling block and they go, nope, can't go any further down this path because it doesn't make any sense. Okay. So, so in thinking about these things, you know, let's, let's, let's say, start with Darwin for a moment. So, so let's say that everything, all of life came from a single cell. Let's, let's, let's start there. So my question is, where did that single cell come from? And where did the fabric of time and space come to hold that single cell? That's my question. All right? So now let's, okay, that's the beginning of life. Let's take it to the Big Bang. 
right, to the, to, the, to the origin of the universe. So there was some explosion of some sort, and then that sort of propelled matter into the vast reaches of space, and then the universe formed, right? So my question is, where did that explosion come from? <laughs> and by the way, and, and now I'm quoting uh, Brian Greene, the physicist Brian Greene, who, who raised this issue in a completely different context. We weren't discussing what I'm discussing right now, but he brought up this point. Where did the laws of physics come from <laughs> to channel that explosion into the universe? Right? We're just assuming the laws of physics. You can't assume anything. If we're talking about the beginning of everything and nothingness. And where did the fabric of time and space come from for that, for that explosion to be an explosion? So, to me, the next step is, there's a creator. Okay, so now you can say, hey, wait a second, hold on there. We, let's exhaust all the other options. Okay, fine, you can do that. You can do that also, but I'm cutting to the chase right now. For me, the answer is there's a creator who created the world. Okay, so now we've got a different approach. The first approach I said was a lot of smart people all going, nah, I don't know. Why? Because they're building from the bottom up. But now, if you say, well, wait a second, it all boils down to a creator. There has to be a creator. Now I've got another way of looking at the world from the top down. It's a completely different way of looking at the universe. Completely different way of looking at life. Now I'm looking at... Now once I've got an assurance, and again, you can struggle with it on your own time, but I'm, you know, once you have an assurance that there's a creator... Now you have the ability to look at the world from God's point of view. And as the Rambam says, there is no contradiction between Torah and science because the one who made Torah is the one who made science. <laughs> so either you don't understand the Torah properly or you don't understand the science properly. But there can't be a disagreement between the two because they're all emanating from the same source. And just like there are certain things that the scientific world doesn't understand, there's going to be certain things that the religious, that the that the Torah world doesn't understand. As as I like to think of it, the the human mind, imagine, is like a cup, right? And I ask you, can a cup hold all the waters of the ocean? <laughs> it's silly to think that it can. God is infinite. It's nice to think, it's nice that science thinks that they'll eventually have the answer to absolutely everything. We just need a little more time, a little more funding, a little more research. But the premise itself that every single thing in the world can be figured out and answered, I think is incorrect. I think it's simply incorrect. Because God is by definition infinite, and we are a subset of that, we're, a fi we're, we're finite. Or, if you want to say it in a deeper way, where there are infinities within infinities, right? As we said, like the number pi, for instance, is 
3.14159, and it keeps on going and it doesn't repeat. So that's just one example. There are many, many examples of irrational numbers. But it shows you that between the number 3 and 4, there are infinite numbers between 3 and 4. So there are levels of infinity. You don't have to define infinity as 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and it keeps on going forever. There's infinities between numbers. And your soul is a piece of God. Your, your, your soul itself is, a, is infinite, but it's a subset of a greater infinity. So you, in other words, you don't have to say God is infinite and I'm finite. You can say God is a greater infinity and I'm a subset, but nonetheless also infinite. Just in case anyone's allergic to being finite. You don't have to be finite. <laughs> it's just different ways of describing us relative to God. That's all. <laughs> so, and this circles back to what we were discussing, making this greater vessel for holding the bigness of God and not making God so small. It's just understanding that we're, we're, we're an infinity dwelling among greater infinities. And then, again, it gives you eyes to see just the miraculous of it, miraculousness of everything around you. And by the way, the Ramban, and he's writing now a thousand years ago, the Ramban says, and this, ever since I read this, I'm still reeling from this line. The Ramban says, Anyone who doesn't say every single thing is a miracle has no portion in the Torah of Moshe. What a statement. What a statement. It's a, that's incredible. That's incredible. But that, again, that is actually what's going on. So I want to I go further now. I want to go further. And so with that as sort of an introduction of sorts. There's a psalm that we say now, starting with the first day of the month of Elul. And we're going to say this through the end of the whole, um, this whole chunk of the year, you know, which is going to culminate in Simcha's Torah and Shmini Yatzeris, right? This is, so... Right now we're in Elul, and, you know, I, I like this visual very much. I'll just kind of walk you through the year in a, in a visual way, or the last chunk of the year. You know, we have the three weeks, which are the sad times on the calendar for us. A lot of bad stuff happened, historically speaking, to the Jewish people during those three weeks. That's usually in end of July, heading into August, and um, culminating in Tisha B'Av, the ninth day of Av, big fast day, marking the destruction of the Holy Temple, both Holy Temples, and all sorts of things. World War I started on Tisha B'Av, which the historians say went right into World War II, Spanish Inquisition, all sorts of things. So, so that's like walking through a bad neighborhood. Like those three weeks, it's like you're walking through a bad neighborhood. Like imagine like it's 2 a.m. in downtown Detroit, right? Like, and you're walking with a group of people 
So if you're working with a group of people at that time in that place, what you want to do is pull everyone close. Like everyone's got to be close. We've got to be like one unit walking through. And of course it says what got us into those bad times, sinas chinam, hating each other for no reason. So the answer actually is pulling each other close, right? Then we have Tuba'av, right? Now things are turning, things are getting better. We say, we're in, right now we're in the month of Elul, we say the king is in the field. Right? That means the king's not just in his palace, God is more accessible this time of year. So the king is in the field. Now we've kind of left the city limits and we're now in this kind of, in this pasture, right? We're in this like meadow. And we're looking ahead, because Rosh Hashanah is ahead. And, and one of the all-time greatest gematrias um, from the Jikov Rebbe, Beis HaMikdash, which is the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, Beis HaMikdash is gematria Rosh Hashanah. Right? So up ahead we see the Beis HaMikdash, which is Rosh Hashanah. Right? That's like waiting for us. So that's, that's kind of just a, a visual of what we've been through and where we're going right now heading toward Rosh Hashanah, to the base of Migdash. And, um, and starting in Elul, we're saying this, this, this psalm every single day, and it's the, 20, it's the 27th psalm, actually twice a day. And it starts off like this, it says, L'David, you know, by David, Hashem is my light and my salvation whom shall I fear? And then it goes on. And basically the rabbis sort of point to how all the different holidays that are coming up are contained in this, in this psalm. They're hinted at. Okay. Um, so I heard Rabbi Freeman say in the name of the Ari something that, that I've been kind of thinking about, which is if you count the times Hashem's name is mentioned in this psalm, so the Ari says, and you can count, it's, we counted, it's, it's, it's accurate. It's 13 times God's holiest name is said in this, in this, in this psalm. And, and the Ari said that this is one of the reasons why this psalm was selected for this period of the year, because God's name is mentioned 13 times in it. One of the reasons. So what's the, you know, in, in Torah, every, everything has meaning, and especially the numbers so what, what, what is the number 13? So the number 13 is, is very similar to the number 8. So more people are familiar with what the number 8 stands for. So, so you have the seven days of the week, and there are many sevens, seven notes in the musical scale, and all sorts of sevens. But, but, but seven represents, God, the world was created in, in seven days. Seven represents the natural order, and eight represents the miraculous. That's why there are like eight days of Hanukkah. That's from the Maharal. That's his explanation of eight. So eight is this transcendent number. It goes beyond the natural order. So the number 13 is very similar to the number eight because we also have 12 constellations, 12 months of the year. Like we have seven days of the week, we have 12 months of the year. So again, 12 is hinting at the natural order and the constellations and also the tribes of Israel, right? So the number 13 now is going above that natural order. And the number 13 is the 13 meters of, 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 of chesed, of kindness. So in other words, 
beyond the natural order of this world, there is a beyond level of divine kindness which exists, okay? Which we're basically summoning into the world with the recitation of this psalm. Okay, we're bringing down those 13 levels of divine chesed, of divine kindness, into this world. Okay. So that all sounds well and good, and that's, that, that was how Rabbi Freeman explained the Ari. But I was thinking about it some more. So, that's great. So, from my understanding of that explanation, I say, good. So let's start saying the 27th Psalm, on Rosh Hashanah. <laughs> in other words, if that's the beginning of the new year, and we're trying to summon down these, these, this great otherworldly kindness into the natural order for the new year, I'll start at the new year. Right? Especially since we say between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, like the world is actually still kind of becoming formed. It's, 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 it's like like those are the, what I like to call the days of wet cement, right? If you if you ever have been walking down the street and you see someone sign their name in the sidewalk or something like that, okay, so you take a stick and sign your name in the sidewalk. Oh, it's like I can't. Why? Because the cement is dry, but when the cement is wet, it's malleable, right? So when the world is coming into formation, which is these days between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, when the world is very malleable. This is when you have the greatest impact to form the world, the days of wet cement, right? But again, we have the question. So then why am I saying this psalm starting in Elul? All right, and now we're going to tie together the whole talk, okay? So I want to, this is my answer. Because right now we're making a vessel to hold the new year. And the vessel that we want to make to hold the new year is not just a natural vessel, it's a supernatural vessel. It's a vessel that's contained, that's made out of the 13 aspects of God's emanations of kindness, which is beyond the natural order, the 12 of this year. In other words, can you imagine if you've got a, right? Imagine you've got a cell phone and it's sort of like, wow, what kind of cell phone is that? Oh, I can receive calls from this world and the next. <laughs> it's like, oh, that's, is that an app? Like, like I want to <laughs> get calls from the next world. That sounds cool, right? Like, imagine you have a vessel that is not just tailored for this world, but it's also tailored for the miraculous, for the beyond. So that's what we're doing in Elul. We're building a vessel, and this is just one example of the way that we're building this vessel right now. But we're building this vessel to hold this new year, but it's a special vessel because we don't want to just hold the natural order. We want to be able to hold the, the beyond as well. Because remember that example that we gave, like send the team of scientists to the wall and tell them don't come back till you reported absolutely everything. We know that the infinite is implanted within the finite. 
right? But now we have to have a vessel to hold that idea because it's not intuitive. Most people and even quote-unquote believing people go through life just thinking what's in front of me is in front of me and it's so easy to forget all of these things that we're talking about. So it's, 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 it's almost, we're almost programmed, we're almost hardwired to forget these, these ideas. Right? But if we make a vessel, if we make this our normal way of thinking, which takes a lot of thinking to make this the normal way of thinking. So, so we do it in other ways. We're also doing it by increasing in the charity that we give. We're also doing it in terms of going out of our way. You know? It's a very beautiful thing to go out of your way for someone else. Right? Because we, if we kind of just kind of go, no, 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 I can't, you know what, maybe, not, no. You, you know, the alley that we're walking through life in becomes narrower and narrower and narrower, and believe it or not, it's con- we are confining ourselves by our own selfishness. And life becomes actually very, very small. But there's all sorts of adventures that await us because the world that we live in is infinite. But we have to access that infinity. And the way to access it is going beyond yourself. 